This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to More Than Amused podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to More Than a Muse. I'm Stani. And I am Sadie. And today we are talking about Emily Dickinson. Yes, we are. Thanks for being here. I hope, I hope you're excited to learn about her. For a minute, I thought you were just talking to me, and I was going to be like, thanks, Sadie. Like, <laughs> like, wow, friend. I am so excited for opportunity to talk. I was actually thinking today that I was like, I feel like I haven't talked to Stani a lot lately. I know. I feel like when we record lately, we've been more on business. And That's anyways. Life has been stressful. It has been. Um, yeah. But I'm, I am glad you're here. I am glad that I get to co-host <laughs> this podcast with you. <laughs> and I'm excited to learn about Emily Dickinson because she's another one of those like names that you hear a lot, but you don't know anything about. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly why I felt like it was time to do her. I went to Barnes & Noble a couple weeks ago and I purchased Little Women. I mm-hmm. went with the intention to buy that book because I've just been seeing a lot of Little Women references and I have never seen any of the movies or read the book. So I was like, you know what? If I'm going to be a co-host of a women <laughs> supporting podcast, like maybe that means that like I should make sure I'm familiar with women's the great works that literature. women have done. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> so I've been reading Little Women. But while I was there, I was, of course, in the classics section Mm -hmm. and I there was a little book that was like five dollars of a collection of Emily Dickinson poetry. And I was like, I don't know. I want to buy this. So I did. So I bought it. Anyways, I I love it. Yeah, it was it was really pretty little edition of it. So I got it. Then I was flipping through it and I was like, I literally I know nothing about Emily Dickinson. And the thing that I am feeling a bit overwhelmed with this episode is that there is a lot of scholarship and a lot of research on the life <laughs> of Emily Dickinson. So how do we sum this up in a 45, 60 minute episode? Well, I don't the know. Eternal struggle. <laughs> yes. I feel like it's either we're giving a 10 minute summary or mm. oh, the whole deep dive. But the other part of it that like feels so overwhelming is the fact that as I did more and more research, I feel like the more and more I was unpacking about her and learning about her and like getting per- different perspectives of like, oh, different scholars, like they don't like that she's being portrayed this way because maybe she was actually more like this. Mm. And for one thing, it was a good reminder for like all of the women we do of like we're only able to provide just brief snapshots yeah. right, of who these women are. There's so much more. I don't know. There's obviously so much more to these women of history that we have no idea. Of course. And, and it's always it going to be intimidating like now. a little bit warped by our perspective, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And also, like, we are no experts. Like we've mentioned, I think, yes. a couple weeks ago, is like this whole podcast is us learning something new every week and sharing, sharing with you it. what we've learned. So, <laughs> so we're doing our best. But there's also a series called Dickinson on Apple TV 
Oh, Haley cool. Steinfeld plays Emily Dickinson. So as my research, I am like three episodes in. It's very good. Nice. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I'll talk maybe a little bit about how it's not accurate but maybe it is accurate the tv show definitely portrays her as like a very sarcastic very witty and also it's not very concerned about making sure that like every aspect is true Hmm. and that it's like a perfect like period piece you know like yeah there's a lot of they, they talk almost like we do in it but it's still very entertaining very fun and it's fun to get like some essence of who she is which is maybe more than like the loner girl that maybe you'll think that she is based Mm -hmm. off of like how I presented today. She actually kind of looks a lot like her. Yeah, right? I think they cast her very, very well. Yeah, like I'm shocked. (laughs) I know, that's what I was thinking. I was like, I actually feel like this is, yeah, very well casted. Like I think her nose is a little different, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, she looks a lot like the portraits of Emily Dickinson. That's I know. Awesome. <laughs> really cool. But it's good. So if you have access to Apple TV stuff, mm-hmm. I would watch it. Like I said, I'm only a couple episodes in, but it's really enjoyable. That's cool. I think it's on season three. So anyways, well, to start off, I thought I would read a poem by dear Emily Dickinson. And What's it's that? here's how it goes. It's I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'd advertise, you know, how dreary to be somebody, how public, like a frog, to tell one's name the livelong June to an admiring bog. I love that. Emily I Dickinson. I feel like Emily Dickinson, I read a ton of her poetry in like middle school. Yeah. I think that's the last time I ever Yeah. yeah but I don't remember learning anything about her. I just remember mm-hmm. reading some of her poems. I've been reading them, you know, a lot, yeah. and uh, it's they're very good. I mean, obviously they're good, but mm-hmm. like I feel like you can get a sense though of her personality in them, yeah. and that's what I like about them. She definitely um, has like a strong voice. Here's the question: What do you think it means to be public like a frog? Just that they're like loud, probably. Okay, this is There's me. My- right before we started the episode, I was asking Sadie translations of different taylor swift lyrics that i didn't know so i feel like i'm gonna be like hey songwriter friend what is your interpretation of this poem line some of the yeah some of the more poetic taylor swift lines take a second they do you really have to like read them and think about each individual word because she really like they are very poetic but yeah i think the how public like a frog to tell one's name because they're ribbiting constantly all june to the bog they are very loud Yes. Okay. Well, let's dive in. Like I said, I feel like I have so much about her life. I'm hoping it doesn't feel too convoluted here, but I'm excited. excited. And hopefully still can get a good enough snapshot of who she was as a woman. Yeah. So Emily Elizabeth Dickinson was born December 10th of 1830. She was, of course, an American poet, but little known. She wasn't very known during her life, but she has been since regarded as one of the most important figures in American poetry. Hmm. So that's one good thing about Emily Dickinson. I do feel like she does get the credit she deserves as far as being an American poet. Yeah. Like if someone would be like, who is a famous poet? I would have always, I would have said Emily Dickinson. Yeah. So, hey, there's something. There we go. Feminism. Her name at least comes up. (laughs) It does. (laughs) So Emily Dickinson was born at the family's homestead in Amherst, Massachusetts. Her 
father, Edward Dickinson, was a lawyer and a trustee of Amherst College. Seems that they were like a pretty prominent family in that area. Her paternal grandfather, Samuel Dickinson, was one of the founders of Amherst College in 1813. He built the homestead that was like a large mansion on the town's main street. And then that became like where the Dickinson family life, like that was a big part of who their family, I guess. So prominent family in that town. She attended primary school in a two-story building on Pleasant Street. And uh, this quote, her education was ambitiously classical for a Victorian girl. Um, Apparently her dad wanted his children to be well-educated. And so he was very like, kept up on their progress. When Dickinson was seven, he wrote home reminding his children to keep school and learn so as to tell me when I come home how many new things you have learned. Which is a difference between that TV show because the TV show, it seems like he's very against like her um, learning. I wonder if that was more so done for the TV show that the father was like very against her learning. I'm... Based off of what I could find, I don't know how true that was. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was know. just to add some conflict in. Like, I think maybe. But also, like, it. I'm sure he wasn't, like, a feminist himself. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he let his daughter learn. That's exactly. a big deal. Because they, a lot of people did not. Exactly. So I'm like, well, I mean, at least she was, like, learning a lot as a child. But there's a quote, I'll probably reference it later on, where it Emily says, like, my father would give me books, but didn't want me to read them. So it's kind of like he would give her the books, but then like almost scold her that she wanted them so bad. So it sounds like they had an interesting relationship. He was battling with his own internalized misogyny. (laughs) Sounds like it. Yes. Uh, But she described her father in a warm manner and her correspondence suggests that her mother was more cold and aloof. Mm -hmm. So in a letter, she wrote that her mom always ran home to Austin when a child with anything befell me. He was an awful mother, but I liked him better than none. So sounds like her father was more of a figure in her life than her mom. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the mom is very cold in the TV show. So there's a similarity. On September 7th of 1840, uh, Emily and her sister Lavinia started together at Amherst Academy that was a former boys' school that had opened to female students just two years earlier. And around that same time that she started going to school, her father bought a house that her brother Austin later described his large new home as the mansion over which him and Emily presided as lord and lady while the parents were absent. Wow. I know. The house overlooked the Amherst burial ground, which was described as, of course, very forbidding and spooky. She kind of had some overarching theme in her poetry is like death and spooky things. So I feel like it's maybe fitting that she was in a home that was very close to the burial ground. I mean, it was 19th century too, right? Mm -hmm. And that was the horror craze. yes oh that's true yeah like really leaned into that (laughs) totally so she spent seven years at that academy taking classes in english and classic literature latin botany geology history mental philosophy and arithmetic so once that became like a girl's school she fully jumped in got you know was very well educated the principal at that school there's a quote that dickinson was very bright and an excellent scholar of exemplary deportment faithful in all school duties 
So she's a very good student. Apparently, though, she had a few off terms due to illness, the longest, which was from 1845 to 1846. So starting from like a young age in her teenage years, she's repeatedly ill and has to take time out of school to feel better. Oh, yeah. So this goes. So Dickinson was troubled from a young age by the deepening menace of death, especially those who were close to her. So Basically, I think from a very young age, like everyone around her was just dying. Like Sophia Holland, her second cousin, who was a really close friend, grew ill from typhus and died in April of 1844. Like that really traumatized Emily. Two years later, recalling the incident, she wrote that it seemed to me I should die too if I could not be permitted to watch over her or even look at her face. So it's obviously like very much affected her for a while her family sent her to boston to recover just to like you know i guess give her a fresh start so yeah i think from a very young age she was feeling this the (laughs) i'm gonna keep referencing the tv show the opening like scene there's a character susan which i'll talk about susan in a minute but they almost keep making jokes and it's like a humor point that everyone in her family has died and and I'm laughing at that, but I think that's what they were trying to like show is that there was just seemed to be a lot of death around yeah. her. So that would be very hard. You'd begin to think you're cursed. <laughs> yeah, I think so. After finishing her final term at the academy, she began attending Mary Lyons Mount Holyoke Family Female Seminary. Wow. A mouthful. Yeah. Later became just Mount Holyoke College. So that's good. And that was just 10 miles from Amherst. She never really left, like, went too far outside of that area. But she only stayed at that seminary for only 10 months. But the explanations for her being there for such a short amount of time have, like, different... No one really knows why. Either she was in poor health, her father wanted her to be back, she was, like, a kind of a rebel, and so they kicked her out. No one really knows why she left. Whatever the reasons that were, though, her brother, Austin, appeared on March 25th to bring her home at all events. And then once she was home, she just did chores, did household activities, and she took up baking for the family. I think I should mention, so her brother, Austin, I think it was an older brother, and then she had a younger sister, Lavinia. And from what I could tell, that family remained pretty close. At least they were really close growing up. I always think it's funny when there's, like, two really common names in a family, and then there's Lavinia. Like, yes, <laughs> like Austin and Emily, very basic. Yeah. <laughs> and then Lavinia. Huh. That's fine. Way to go, her. <laughs> I know. So when she was 18, Dickinson's family befriended a young attorney by the name of Benjamin Franklin Newton. Mm. According to a letter written by Dickinson after Newton's death, so I, again, he died. He had been with my father two years before going to Worcester in pursuing his studies and was much in our family. But we don't think that this relationship was romantic. He, though, was a very formative influence and would become like the second of in a series of older men that she would refer to variously as her tutor or master. He mm. was the one who introduced her to the writings of William Wordsworth and his gift to her of Ralph Waldo Emerson's first book of collected poems apparently like had a very strong effect on her she wrote that he whose name my father's law student taught me has touched the secret spring so obviously this is a very notable relationship in her life because he introduced her to such you know amazing poets that had such an influence on her 
Yeah. And he held her in a high regard, believing and recognizing her as a poet. So I think that's really cool. There were people in her life that were at least encouraging of it. He died of tuberculosis, but he wrote to her saying he would like to live until she achieved the greatness he foresaw, which I think is really sweet. And biographers believe that Dickinson's statement of 1862, this said, when a little girl, I had a friend who taught me immortality, but venturing too near himself, he never returned. And they think that that's referring to this friend of hers. That's a very poetic way to say that. I know, right? (laughs) Other potential influences on her Of course, there was the Bible, and I think there's some religious themes. I think for, like, there was a brief time in her either teenage years or adulthood where, like, she maybe was religious for a season, but that didn't last. Was it, like, Protestant, Catholic? I think so. I I think it was some, like, Christian religion that kind of came through the area, but she never was, like, officially baptized, and I think eventually just kind of moved on. Gotcha. She was also influenced by Lydia Maria Child's Letters from New York, which was another gift from Newton. And after reading it, she said, this then is a book and there are more of them. So I think that's sweet. Uh, Her brother smuggled a copy of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's Kavanaugh into the house for her because apparently her father would have maybe disapproved. Her friend lent her Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre in late 49. And though we like we don't know for sure what the influence of that book was on her uh when she acquired her first and only dog she named him carlo after the character the saint river saint john river's dog so obviously that had some type of effect on her yeah. that book because she literally named her dog after a character william shakespeare was also a very big influence in her life referring to his place she ra- later wrote to one friend why clasp any hand but this and to another why is any other book needed wow so very much held Shakespeare in a very high regard. Yeah, I mean, he is like... Shakespeare. Yeah, the original <laughs> like blueprint for all literature, pretty much. So Yeah, so I guess that's yeah. fair. Very good point. Um, so, adulthood. In early 1850, she wrote that Amherst is alive with fun this winter. Oh, a very great town this is. But then soon after, there was another death in the family the amherst academy principal that she was very close with leonard humphrey died suddenly of brain congestion at 25 and two years after his death she revealed to her friend some of my friends are gone and some of my friends are sleeping sleeping the churchyard sleep the hour of evening is sad it was once my study hour my master has gone to rest and the open leaf of the book and the scholar at school alone make the tears come and i cannot brush them away i would not if i could for they are the only tribute i can pay the departed humphrey so she's very like like that's such beautiful language in describing her sadness but i think it just like shows the depth of how all these things were affecting her which i don't mean to like call her dramatic for you know having all these people close to her is dying is very sad so i'm going to talk about susan gilbert so during this time her strongest and most affectionate relationship was actually with her sister-in-law Susan Gilbert. So it's the woman that her brother married. And I'm pretty sure that they were childhood friends. So they grew up together. I think they met at some type of school, if I'm remembering right. 
but she eventually sent her over 300 letters more than to any other correspondent over the course of their relationship she was supportive of emily the poet playing the role of quote my most beloved friend influence muse and advisor and Mm. whose editorial suggestions dickinson sometimes would follow in an 1882 letter to susan dickinson said with the exception of shakespeare you have told me of more knowledge than anyone living wow and we know how much she loved shakespeare Yes, so she loved Susan. It's like pretty much for sure, not for sure that Susan and her were in love. Yeah, I mean. And they had a very romantic relationship. And the TV show definitely explores that relationship. I read an article from, I think the Vulture put it out, that was from a scholar who wrote a book of, oh my gosh, hold on. Oh, yeah. There's a book called Open Me Carefully, Emily Dickinson's Intimate Letters to Susan Huntington Dickinson. Mm. And it pretty much is, I think, just a collection of these poems. And the Open Me Carefully, they actually got that from like what was written on the outside of one of her letters. So that's like a quote from Emily to Susan. And um, I was reading an article where they talked to the woman who compiled that book about the TV show and kind of asked, like, what do you think works? What do you think doesn't? And she was like 100 percent OK with everything that they did with the relationship between those two. Wow. So it very much like it's like I said, there's nothing explicitly that tells us for sure. But like, yes, they were in love. What's interesting, though, is the importance of that relationship with Susan has maybe been overlooked due to a point of view that was first promoted by a woman named Mabel Loomis Todd, who was Austin Dickinson's mistress for a while. Oh, yes. And she would diminish Susan's role in Emily's life due to her own of course, poor relationship with her lover's wife. Can you believe it? She's so, doesn't have a good relationship. And so I think she kind of painted Susan as like this cruel, like cold woman and totally did her best to like write her out of the picture. And I'll talk about later how she even had the power to do that. But this has been questioned by Susan and Austin's surviving children with whom Emily Dickinson was very close. And like I said, many people have interpreted their relationship between Emily and Susan to be romantic. In the Emily Dickinson journal, Lena Kosky wrote, Dickinson's letters to Gilbert express strong feelings. She quotes from many of their letters, including from one in 1852. And she says, Susie, will you indeed come home next Saturday and be my own again and kiss me? I hope for you so much and feel so eager for you. Feel that I cannot wait. Feel that now I must have you, that the expectation once more to see your face again makes me feel hot and feverish and my heart beats so fast. My darling, so near I seem to you that I disdain this pen and wait for a warmer language. So, I mean, you don't usually yeah. write like that to your sister-in-law. <laughs> Same. Or to, like, your friends. Like, I love you, Stan. Love doing this podcast with you. I don't <laughs> think I would write that way to you. So, no. I think that definitely surpasses typical female friendship. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of funny that we have, like, all these letters. Like, do you think that will happen with historical figures now that we'll have, like, their text messages? I hope not. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's kind of a weird idea that like, is it just going to stop at some point? Like we won't That's what records? I was 
thinking is I was like, this feels almost like so personal that I'm reading this personal correspondence with her and this woman that she loved. But like they've been since published. And now because we have these letters, we know so much about her. So that's a blessing. Ever assumed that they'd be read, though, right? Probably. I mean, I, I would assume probably not. Yeah kind of makes me feel bad about it but I know me too I was like I'm like I'm feeling a little like bashful reading this I'm like I feel like I'm reading someone's like text to their lover like that's none of my business um but she married Austin in 1856 after a four-year courtship though their marriage was not a happy one Edward Dickinson their father built a house for Austin and Sue naming it the Evergreens a stand of which was located at the west side of the homestead so they lived basically right next to the family home until 1855 she never really strayed from Amherst except there was one spring with her mom and sister that they took a really long trip throughout Washington and philadelphia and all around that and like through there she met charles wadsworth a famous minister of the arch street presbyterian church with whom she forged a very strong friendship which lasted until his death in 1882 but she only ever saw him twice the first time that they met and then again in 1862 but she variously referred to him as my philadelphia my clergyman my dearest earthly friend and my shepherd from little girlhood So I feel like she like developed a lot of really strong friendships and like maintained those friendships really well. That's incredible, honestly. Mm -hmm. I'm like, how to go on a family vacation and like come back with a lifelong friend. I know. Maybe I should take notes. (laughs) In the mid 1850s, her mom became very ill. And as her mom continued to decline in health, her domestic responsibilities weighed more and more on her. So she pretty much just fully confined herself within the homestead. 40 years later, Lavinia said that because her mother was chronically ill, one of the daughters had to remain always with her. And Emily took this role as her own and, quote, finding the life with her books and nature so congenial, continued to live it. Wow. So that family sounds like they were like very close, maybe not emotionally, but I don't think Lavinia ever married and Emily didn't either. They just grew up in that home and Austin never strayed Lived, that like, far from door. it either. Yeah. Yeah. So they've stayed in Amherst. But because of this, she started drawing more and more from the outside world. She began in the summer of 1858 what would be her lasting legacy. So reviewing poems that she had written previously, she began making clean copies of her work and assembling them like very carefully pieced together manuscript books. And there's 40 of these books that she created from 1858 through 1865 that eventually held nearly 800 poems but no one was aware of the existence of these books until after her death oh my gosh yeah that's a lot of poetry to keep hidden for that long and i feel like though she was obviously very inspired that she knew that what she was doing should be preserved yeah and obviously like it's amazing that she made those efforts to do that that's incredible so 40 different books all filled with poetry yeah, 800 poems total. Whoa. But no one, yeah, no one knew that those were all there. In the late 1850s, she befriended someone named Samuel Bowles, who was the owner and editor-in-chief of the Springfield Republican and his wife, Mary. 
They visited the Dickinsons regularly for years after, and during this time, she actually sent him over three dozen letters and nearly 50 poems. Their friendship apparently brought out some of her most intense writing, and Bowles published a few of her poems in his journal. It was from 1858 to 1861 that she is believed to have written a trio of letters that have been called the Master Letters. These three letters drafted to an unknown man simply referred to as Master continue to be the subject of speculation and contention of who this master is that she's speaking to. So, and I know though that those poems, I believe they were published anonymously. Oh, okay. I wondered about so, that. So, yeah, I forgot to mention that. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. Okay, so I found this person on my instagram discovery page which by the way is a bonus of our more than amuse instagram page because we follow all these artists which means so much beautiful art is recommended to us yeah and i found this painter so her name is morgan gray and the instagram handle is morgan paint stuff and yeah she is a painter and i don't really know a lot about like styles but it's like she paints greek statues or just people in general some are abstract they're just really freaking cool and the colors are beautiful i know that like she does commissions i well commissions are currently closed apparently but i think she also does like just restocks and prints that you can purchase these are so cool i don't know how to describe the style yeah i don't either oh it looks like though she has restocks every week so oh, you can cool. get the works on canvas oh my gosh they're stunning she did a whole marvel series painting every single marvel character pretty much yeah uh-huh she has harry styles billy eilish princess diana oh they're so cool these are amazing i like want this artemis and v- venus de, de oh, milo yeah. print for real like i'm obsessed i honestly oh even a dolly there we go there's i am really so like okay i am definitely moving to nashville and so now i like get to decorate a future home yeah Yeah, guys hi i'm moving to nashville i'm so excited and now that i have all these arts i'm like we're not okay we would love to buy a home there's no way in heck we're buying (laughs) home this year we looked into it it's not gonna happen eventually Um, eventually hopefully next year we could do it but not this year anyways but like this artemis and venus de milo i feel like i could get big prints and frame them and i bet my husband would actually really like these oh yeah i yeah these are super cool Mm -hmm. anyways so go check out morgan paint stuff because morgan does indeed paint stuff and she does a very good job at it she does a very good job i'm going to be scrolling for a long time (laughs) i know i have an illustrator very cottagecore vibes, very on theme. Her name is Kay Hunt, and her username is OKYA. So I'll spell it. It's O H K A Y A Y. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Aha, okay, yay. She's based in upstate New York, and they're just cute. <gasps> oh, yeah. Indeed, cottagecore vibes. Right? She even has a picture of her with a cow. So. <gasps> hello yeah that's so cute and the cow's name is bumblebee so i mean i well, feel like can emily we get dickinson any more wholesome proof <laughs> emily dickinson approved absolutely yeah like even the halloween ones are just a 
adorable. Like I could see all these being in like a very cute children's book. Absolutely. Yeah. Just the sweetest things. I don't even know what material she's using. It looks like colored pencil, but it looks too clean to be colored pencil at the same time. Oh, it looks like she has done some colored pencil, maybe some gouache. I don't know. I love the texture though. They're just really cute. There's like a little frog with a party hat and a flower and a bunny and like floral overalls. I'm just, yeah. A bunny and floral overalls. I (laughs) mean, can we get any better than this? No, it's very cute. (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely love Uh, it. I'm looking at her website right now. Let's see if there's anything. I think she just has like pictures of her sketchbook and her work and then you can contact her. So I don't know. If you can actually buy anything she does, maybe you have to, like, commission it. Oh, she focuses on children's books. That makes sense. Well, that is so nice. So I guess if you're writing a children's book or know somebody who is, like, She can draw you a out. bunny with flower floral yeah. rose. It's very cute. <laughs> it is. It's adorable. Cool. So, yeah, follow her at OKYay on Instagram. All right. Now, back to the show. So... During this first half of 1860s, she started to largely withdraw from social life, and this became her most productive writing period. Modern scholars and like the researchers are divided as to like why she suddenly would withdraw and become so secluded. She was diagnosed as having nervous prostration by a physician during her lifetime, but some people today believe that she made might have also suffered from other illnesses such as agoraphobia and epilepsy and that would be like the reason why she withdrew so much because like i mentioned like she had all these lifelong friends Mm -hmm. so it's kind of weird maybe that at a certain point she would just completely withdraw and choose not to interact with people and i'll talk later as to like how far that goes this withdrawal also i just looked up what nervous prostration is because that's weird but oh yeah what is it it's an emotional disorder that leaves you exhausted and unable to work just basically complete exhaustion. It just sounds like like overworked from a lot of stress and then you withdraw. I feel like everyone probably does that at some point, right? At least yeah, to some I think degree. so. At least it just needs a break. Yeah. <laughs> this is another significant relationship or friendship in her life. April of 1862, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who was a literary critic, a radical abolitionist. By the way, like she's alive during the 1850s, 1860s, like Civil War, things Mm -hmm. leading up to the Civil War. So that's going on. I mean, granted, she's like up in Boston. So I don't think she was so directly affected by that. But I think that like shows us to like what was going on in the country, you know? Mm -hmm. And he, like I said, was a radical abolitionist and an ex-minister. He wrote a lead piece for the Atlantic Monthly titled Letter to a Young Contributor. And in his essay, he urged aspiring writers to charge your style with life. And it contained advice for those wishing to break into print. And she made the decision to contact him. And like, because she made the decision to contact him, people are wondering maybe she was contemplating publishing. But of course, like maybe didn't know how. So Mm. was looking for advice. She sent him a letter which read in full, Mr. Higginson, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? The mind is so near itself, it 
cannot see distinctly and I have none to ask. Should I think it breathed and had you the leisure to tell me, I should feel quick gratitude if I make the mistake that you dared tell me would give me sincere honor toward you. I enclose my name asking you, if you please, sir, to tell me what is true, that you will not betray me. It is needless to ask since honor is its own pawn. I feel she's so theatrical in the way she corresponds with people and I absolutely love it I love it too but he praised her work but kind of suggested that she delay publishing until she had written longer apparently though like she delighted in this like dramatic self-characterization and mystery that she kind of like made herself seem with these letters so she really played that up she wrote i am small like the wren and my hair is bold like the chestnut burr and my eyes like the sherry in the glass that the guest leaves and i just love that and she also like would super stress her solitary nature saying her only real companions were the hills the sundown and her dog carlo which i like that yeah (laughs) she also mentioned that Whereas her mother did not care for thought, like I mentioned, her father brought her books but begged her not to read them because he fears they joggle the mind. I'll put the record down that yep. my parents were both stupid. <laughs> and you went good for her. <laughs> yeah. But she really valued his advice going from calling him Mr. Higginson to dear friend, as well as signing her letters, your gnome, your scholar. And his interest in her work like definitely provided really good moral support. Many years later, Dickinson told Higginson that he had saved her life in 1862 mm. and they actually corresponded until her death. But her difficulty in expressing her literary needs and very much a reluctance to, I don't know, maybe like make that step. He didn't necessarily press her to publish, but someone said a literary critic, Edmund Wilson, in his review of Civil War literature said that with encouragement, she certainly would have published. So, yeah, I don't know why people around her weren't, but I mean, she sounds like a very strong personality maybe a difficult woman so maybe he was just like i don't i won't push it (laughs) so in the direct opposition of this like intense productive time that she displayed in the early 1860s she wrote fewer poems starting in 1866 personal loss and a loss of domestic help she kind of became the main person taking care of the homestead and she i mean at a certain point sometimes you go through phases sometimes you're just too busy to write yeah Um, her dog actually died during this time and no after 16 years she had that dog wow Mm -hmm. and after carlo she never owned another dog And then that house, their household servant, Margaret O'Brien, had married and left the homestead that same year. And like I said, nine years that were, they were in, she was in the family. And until they brought in another maid, like three years later, she was once again responsible for the kitchen, cooking, cleaning, as well as the baking, which apparently she was a really good baker, randomly. Yeah. Around this time, her behavior began to change even more. She actually, she did not leave the homestead unless it was absolutely necessary as early as 1867. And she began to talk to visitors from the other side of a door rather than speaking to them face to face. And because of this, she kind of acquired local notoriety because she was rarely seen. And when she was, she was usually clothed in white. Her one surviving article of clothing is just a simple white cotton dress. 
few of the locals who exchanged messages with Dickinson during her last 15 years ever saw her in person. Austin and his family kind of began to protect her privacy, deciding that she was not to be a subject of discussion with outsiders. So her family was very protective of this. But despite her physical seclusion, her like her letters, she was still very almost like socially active and very expressive yeah through all of her surviving notes and letters do we know why she did that i don't think so huh so like they don't her behavior changed i i'm thinking she must have had some type of physical illness yeah because why else would you just not let anyone but your family see you for the last 15 years of your life that's interesting maybe it was just mental illness i don't know maybe But when visitors came to eat at the homestead or the evergreens, she would often leave or send over small gifts of poems or flowers. And there's a poem that she wrote. And it's a solemn thing. It was, I said, a woman white to be and where if God should count me fit her blameless mystery. So maybe she's doing it for the dramatics. Yeah. I don't know. She's just like, I want to be a Victorian ghost. <laughs> I mean, let's do it. <laughs> Higginson, that, you know, writer that she became really good friends with, tried to get her to come to Boston in 1868, but she declined saying, could it please your convenience to come as far as Amherst? I should be very glad, but I do not cross my father's ground to any house or town. And in mm. 1870, he actually did come to Amherst and they met. Later, he referred to her in the most detailed and vivid physical account of her on record as a little plain woman with two smooth bands of reddish hair in a very plain and is exquisitely clean white pick pique? Yes. And a blue net worsted shawl. He also felt that he never was with anyone who drained my nerve power so much without touching her. She drew from me and I'm glad not to live near her. Wow. So she obviously had a very strong presence, I guess. <laughs> I guess. But, Holy you know, cow. That's just his opinion. This makes me really want to meet her. I know. <laughs> just because I'm insanely curious. <laughs> that's why I feel like the more I learned about her, the more I had more questions. And that's yeah. why I feel like I still wasn't able to get like a good picture of really who she was. Because I'm like, I don't know why she didn't see anyone for the last 15 years of her life or like, all these accounts of her are just like so different, I feel. Yeah. Because it seems like her family just adores her. And I know it read too that like the children in her life, she was very close with and they just loved her. So I'm like, this is just so interesting to me of why, you know, of who she was and what she was like. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't feel like we've ever seen this many conflicting opinions of one person. <laughs> right? <laughs> what I thought was interesting is the there's a scholar judith farr she wrote that during dickinson's lifetime she was probably more known as a gardener than a poet because she studied botany from the age of nine and along with her sister tended the garden at homestead during her lifetime she assembled a collection of pressed plants in a 66 page leather bound book that contained 424 pressed flower specimens that she collected classified and labeled using the linnean system wow so just a woman of many talents and passions yeah baking and gardening and and poetry poetry. and mystery and drama that sounds like the perfect cottagecore life (laughs) i was gonna say like this is where the cottagecore lesbian trope comes from it's emily dickinson (laughs) it's emily dickinson (laughs) yeah like i'm like oh i get it this is this is a very real thing that existed yeah the life of emily dickinson well 
There we go. Um, on June 16th, 1874, while in Boston, Edward Dickinson, her father, suffered a stroke and died. When the simple funeral was held in the homestead's entrance hall, she actually stayed in her room with the door cracked open and she didn't attend the memorial service either. So this really shows like even for her own father's funeral, she did not make an appearance. Yeah, there had to have been something going on. You don't hide you yourself don't... that much. Yeah, I agree. And maybe like some Emily Dickinson scholar would be able to say what it was, but nothing that I could find could like say exactly what was going on here. That's so interesting. She wrote to Higginson that her father's quote, heart was pure and terrible. And I think no other like it exists, which makes me laugh. And then later on June 15th of 1875. So just, oh my gosh, almost a year to the day. Her mother also suffered a stroke, which caused her issues and impaired her memory i don't think she died from that immediately but also like two family friends who were very close to her died around this time so just again so many so much death yeah so she continued to write in her last years but she stopped editing and organizing her poems like she did in her past Mm -hmm. she also apparently made her sister lavinia promise to burn her papers and all of her correspondence once she passed away um she didn't and she didn't and that's why i was able to read all of these her love letters yes uh uh-huh like i mentioned her sister she never married either so they both stayed at the homestead until they died the 1880s were a difficult time for the remaining dickinsons austin who was very alienated from his wife fell in love with a mabel loomis todd an amherst college faculty wife who had recently moved to the area so she was also married I think if I'm reading that right, yep. Goodness Todd gracious. never actually met Emily, but was intrigued by her because, of course, you are this intriguing character. She referred to her as a lady whom the people call the myth. And Austin distanced himself from his family as his affair continued and his wife became sick with grief, of course. The mother died on November 14th of 1882. Five weeks later, she wrote, we were never intimate while she was our mother, but minds in the same ground met meet by tunneling. And when she became our child, the affection came. So I think she's saying that after she had that stroke and they, you know, had to take care of her, her. finally sounds like they were able to have a relationship the next year austin and sue's third and youngest child gilbert who was apparently emily's favorite died of typhoid fever oh my gosh so yes as death succeeded death she of course became very sad in the fall of 1884 she wrote the dyings have been too deep for me and before i could raise my heart from one another has come That summer, she had seen, quote, a great darkness coming and fainted while baking in the kitchen, and she remained unconscious late into the night, and weeks of ill health followed, which is very sad. She was confined to her bed for a few months, but managed to send a final burst of letters in the spring. What is thought to be her last letter was sent to her cousins, Louis and Francis Norcross, and simply read, little cousins called back Emily. Interesting. And on May 5th, of 1886 she died at the age of 55 austin her brother wrote in his diary that quote the day was awful she ceased to breathe that terrible breathing just before the afternoon whistle sounded for six and apparently the chief physician gave her the cause of death as bright's disease and she had that for two and a half years which isn't necessarily the you know 
15 years that she was in seclusion. So yeah, Bright's disease is now known as nephritis and it's an inflammation of the kidneys caused by toxins, infections, or autoimmune conditions. Okay, so just like an autoimmune disease? Yeah. When she died, Lavinia and Austin asked Susan to wash Dickinson's body. Susan also wrote Dickinson's obituary for the Springfield Republican, ending it with four lines from one of Dickinson's poems. Morns like these we parted, noons like these she rose, fluttering first then firmer to her fair repose. I was reading an article that pointed out the fact that it was Susan who washed her body and wrote the obituary. It wasn't the siblings. Like, the siblings asked her to do that. So the fact that the siblings were very much aware of that relationship and, like, recognized how close they are, like, is obviously very significant because it was Susan who was I mean, it does also sound like her husband was searching elsewhere for affection. So, yeah. (laughs) And, I mean kind of sounds like they were in love you know before yeah they they've gotten married so uh her funeral sounds nice she was buried in a white coffin with vanilla scented heliotrope a lady's slipper orchid and a knot of bluefield violets placed about it the funeral service was held in the homestead's library was short and simple higginson who had met her only twice read no coward soul is mine which is a poem by emily bronte that had been a favorite of dickinson's and at dickinson's request her coffin was not driven but carried through fields of buttercups for burial in the family plot at west cemetery on triangle street that is gorgeous i know like reading that i was like what flowers everywhere poetry by a female poet that you enjoy and then carried through through fields fields of buttercups buttercups. and it takes place in a library before that man i mean i think this woman was very dedicated to her aesthetic (laughs) (laughs) probably the most the most i've ever seen the most that has ever been done (laughs) she truly leaned into every little part of that like (laughs) yep and and like absolutely it's beautiful even just reading that i'm like stunning (laughs) so just So as far as publication, so this is like when finally the world knows about Emily Dickinson. So despite her prolific writing, only 10 poems and a letter were published during her lifetime. And like I said, I believe that the poems were done anonymously. After Dickinson's death, Lavinia, her sister, kept her promise and burned most of the poet's correspondence. So, you know, what we do have. Interesting. I know. We have the censored versions. Exactly. So who knows what (laughs) we've missed out on. Significantly, though, Emily had left no instructions about the 40 notebooks and loose sheets gathered in a locked chest. Lavinia recognized the poem's worth and became obsessed with seeing them published. Mm -hmm. She turned first to her brother's wife and then to Mabel Loomis Todd, his lover, for assistance. And because of this, a feud ensued. So the manuscripts were divided between the Todd and Dickinson houses that prevented complete publication of Dickinson's poetry for more than half a century. Which I'm confused that how did... Okay, so we have Susan, who is obviously like the love of Emily's life. Yeah. And the other person who for some reason like owns half of this poetry is she the brother's have had any mistress claim to it 
No, there's like, no, she had never even met Emily. Yeah, because with Emily gone too, Susan is technically the head of the Dickinson household because her mother was gone too, right, at that point? Yep. Yeah, so like Susan had complete claim, I think, over all of it. Yeah. It's very, very weird. I have no idea how this happened, but the first volume of Dickinson poems was edited by this Mabel Loomis Todd and T.W. Higginson, who was, you know, the writer that she very much looked up to. And that was published in 1890. Although Todd claimed that they like only essential changes were made, the poems were extensively edited to match punctuation and capitalization of the late 19th century standards and there were a couple rewordings of things as well but this first 115 poem volume was a critical and financial success that went through 11 printings in two years poems second series followed in 1891 running to five editions by 1893 a third series appeared in 1896 and one reviewer in 1892 wrote the world will not rest satisfied till every scrap of her writings, letters, as well as literature has been published. Whoa. I know, right? Martha Dickinson, who was the daughter of Susan and Austin, published collections of her aunt's poetry based on the manuscripts held by her family, whereas Mabel Loomis Todd's daughter, Millicent Todd Bingham, published collections based on the manuscripts held by her mother and these competing editions of dickinson's poetry often like they were differing in order and structure kind of ensured that the public's work though was in the public's eye so it's almost like because they were competing with each other i think more and more and more kept getting published and maybe like i don't know if i don't know how aware of the feud everyone was because i wonder if that like added almost like a reason to try you know each version of it i don't know so maybe that ended up aiding emily dickinson even though it just Mm -hmm. drives me insane that the lover of her brother for some reason had claim to half of this and the fact that austin dickinson is like fine with this i I don't it's fine i don't understand what the heck (laughs) i know but the first scholarly publication come in 1955 with a complete new three volume set by that was edited by thomas h johnson forming the basis of later dickinson scholarship his varium brought all of the known poems together for the very first time and the goal was to present the poems very like almost identically as the way dickinson had left them in her manuscripts they were untitled and they were only numbered which is how they were originally written in 1981 the manuscript books of emily dickinson was published using the physical evidence of the original papers the poems were intended to be published in their original order for the first time And apparently the editor relied on smudge marks, needle punctures, and other clues to like resemble the poet's packets to like actually put them in the correct order. That's cool. So, yeah. The biographer Alfred Habiger wrote in My Wars Are Laid Away in Books, The Life of Emily Dickinson. He wrote that the consequences of the poet's failure to disseminate her work in a faithful and orderly manner are still very much with us. So, very significant. Okay, I feel like I've been talking so much, but I do want to actually give a shout out to 
her poetry and talk a little bit more about that before we wrap up. I've been held captive the entire time. Perfect. So her poems generally fall into three distinct periods and the works in these periods have like certain characters in common. So before 1861, The poems are most often conventional and sentimental. Thomas H. Johnson, who later published the poems of Emily Dickinson, was able to date only five of her poems that were written before 1858. Two of those are mock valentines that were done in kind of like an ornate and humorous style. So I'm sure it was kind of more of a joke. And two others are more conventional one of which is about missing her brother Austin. And the fifth poem, which begins, I have a bird in spring, conveys her grief over the feared loss of friendship and was sent to her friend Sue Gilbert. In 1858, she began to collect her poems in the small hand-sewn book she calls Fascicles. Fascicles? Anyways, so before that, though, they only had like those three random things, which, huh. yeah, I love that one of them's literally a, a joking valentine. Yeah. From 1861 to 1865, this is her most creative period, and these poems represent her most vigorous and creative work. Her poetic production also increased dramatically during this period. It's estimated that she composed 35 poems in 1860, 86 poems in 1861, 366 in 1862, 141 in 1863, and 174 in 1864. And this is kind of when she really developed her more common themes, which were nature, life, and mortality. 366 poems in one year. That's like, that's one a day. That's a lot of poems. That's a lot of poems. (laughs) After 1866, though, only a third of her poems were written in these last 12 years of her life, which is crazy. Like, you know, a third of her poems in the last 12 years, and then there was one year that 366 but hey you know what that just shows we all have creative ebbs and flows yeah you can have an off season and still become one of america's most important poets definitely and also too she stopped collecting them though as much so who knows maybe there were more that just didn't you know that got lost but yeah maybe she was like more critical of her work at that time so she's throwing more in the fireplace (laughs) yeah that's what i'm wondering (laughs) i do want to talk about the common themes that were in her poetry so the first one is flowers and gardens like i mentioned she was maybe more commonly known as a gardener there's a quote that says poems and letters almost wholly concern flowers and that allusions to gardens often refer to an imaginative realm wherein flowers are often emblems of actions and emotions like she'll associate certain kind of flowers like such for example like i don't know flowers very well gen gentians and anemones with youth and humility and others with prudence and insight so it sounds like she definitely like you know used flowers a lot to the point that she was you know having certain flowers be representative of different emotions that's cool another common thing like i mentioned is the master poems and no one really knows who this master is she left a large number of poems addressed to senior sir and master who is characterized as dickinson's lover for all eternity but I feel hmm. like that's Sue. That's I don't know. Or maybe it's just like a master is like, who knows if it's actual person, right? Or if it's an yeah. idea. Maybe it was an idea. Like the said, the Dickinson scholars don't know. So they don't know who this master is. Another really common one is morbidity. Her poems reflect her early and lifelong fascination with illness, dying, and death. Her most psychologically complex poems explore the theme that the loss of hunger for life 
causes the death of self and place this at, quote, the interface of murder and suicide. Death and morbidity in Dickinson's poetry is also heavily connected to winter themes. There's a critic, Edwin Folsom, analyzes how, quote, winter for Dickinson is the season that forces reality, that strips all hope of transcendence. It is the season of death and a metaphor for death. Huh. Which I also hate the winter, so. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, everything does die. Yeah. (laughs) And then the last more common theme is the gospel poems. Throughout her life, she wrote poems reflecting a preoccupation with the teachings of Jesus Christ. And many of her poems were actually addressed to him. She stresses the gospel's contemporary pertinence and recreates them, often with wit and American colloquial language. So... Like I said, I think she was lightly religious. Yeah. From what I can understand. It It makes you wonder, though, maybe the master poems were about God. Yeah. I mean, they do refer to him. Yeah, because they refer to him a lot in the scriptures as master. master. I don't know if that's like a theory, but that makes sense to me. Well, yeah. So those are the common themes. I want to read this little paragraph I found about her legacy. Emily Dickinson is now considered a powerful and persistent figure in American culture. Although much of the early reception concentrated on Dickinson's eccentric and secluded nature, she's become widely acknowledged as an innovative proto-modernist poet. As early as 1891, William Dean Howells wrote that, quote, if nothing else had come out of our life but this strange poetry, we should feel that in the work of Emily Dickinson, America, or New England rather, had made a distinctive addition to the literature of the world and could not be left out of any record of it. Hmm. And this critic placed her alongside Walt Whitman, Wallace Stevens, Robert Frost, T.S. Eliot, and Hart Crane as a major American poet. And in 1954, she was listed among the 26 central writers of Western civilization. Yeah. So very fair, which is just crazy that it's like her whole life and none of it was published. And then posthumously, she becomes one of the, like the most important literary figures in American history. It is really kind of spooky when people like set aside all of their work in like locked boxes and stuff. Like we saw this with Helma Offclint, like sets everything aside, keeps it locked up until after they die it's almost like they know yeah but it's like what <laughs> like, <laughs> like why wouldn't you do this when you're still alive yeah i don't know, I don't know. interesting but yeah it is very very interesting to me so yeah there is the insane life of emily dickinson, dickinson. that i knew absolutely nothing about but Like I said, I know I've only scratched the surface on who she really is and really was, but like now I just want to learn even more and I'm going to keep on watching Dickinson on Apple TV. So I know I want to like, I feel like there's so many mysteries with her. That's yeah. (laughs) And she definitely perpetuated that, which is okay. (laughs) I know, but I'm like, okay, so why was she hiding in her room? Why did she keep her poets a secret? (laughs) Uh What was happening? What was the relationship with Susan really like? I don't know know either. Interesting. Huh. What a fascinating woman. I know. And go read her poetry. I finally am. And just such beautiful language. Obviously. I mean. I know I have read quite a few of them. I think we had to memorize quite a few of them and offer different things in junior high. But that's so interesting. So there is one of my new faves. Again, adding to the list of people to meet when I die. 
Yeah, 100%. We'll go to the afterlife and be like, all right, Emily, like I need all the gossip. Just tell me everything. Let's sit down and have a chat. Like what, what was going on? It's okay. I'm, I'm fine with whatever you got to say. Yeah. I'm just incredibly fascinated. I Uh really need to know what was happening. Well, thank you. I think that's it. Yeah. A new subject of mystery. And thanks everyone for being here. I hope you learned something new. Hopefully there weren't any Emily Dickinson scholars shaking in their boots, but I think (laughs) I did my best to just present the facts <laughs> yeah i mean if there are any emily dickinson scholars Let's that talk wanna, yeah like oh my gosh now totally, i'm obsessed i am all for that we'll be back next week with another episode if mm-hmm. you've been a fan of the podcast leave us a review share it with your favorite friend yeah definitely we're almost at ten thousand downloads mm-hmm, which is exciting for Very our little podcast exciting. So Mm -hmm. the more people you share it with, the more More of a chance, more of a chance we have of reaching that goal even sooner and more excited we get. (laughs) So cool. Well, we will talk to you all next week. See ya. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.